0: This is the award-winning show, The Big Electron. I'm Jackie. And I'm Anahita. Thank you for subscribing. Please rate us on iTunes.
1: Is it true that you can leap over a chair from a standing position? It depends on the size of the chair. Uh, I'll cheat a little bit. The Big Electron. The Big Electron. So I have cheated very badly, you see. out in the cosmos Wreckers, swallowing entire stars
0: Nothing is more no seductive <laughs> Yeah! Are you feeling it now, Mr. Krabs? Are you feeling it?
2: Of course you feel it. Now what do you want to know?
1: What I want to know is what's going on.
0: I think it's time to blow this thing Get everybody in the stuff together Okay, three, two, one, let's jam Good evening, ladies
2: and gentlemen. We've got a great job for you tonight. Let's get right to it. All right, welcome to The Big Electron here on KCU 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.
0: It's been a while.
2: It's been a while. Because we had spring break off. Mm-hmm. It's good to be back. It's good to be back. It's nice to see you. It's nice to see you, too. <laughs> Not that we don't see each other, like, almost every other day, but whatever.
0: Poor Jackie can't get away from me if she tried. And believe me, she's tried. Run.
2: So this stranger voice that you're hearing, uh, it's actually our guest. And we have a a really special guest because he's from the Department of Chemistry, and he's been around... uh, teaching us how to do grad school so it's it's exciting to have him as, yeah. as a guest the
1: old hand, the old <laughs> hand.
2: Uh, but before we introduce him just a reminder that if you want to get in touch with us you can do so by uh, going to our facebook page where we are the big electron or you can also email us at the big at gmail.com and if you're listening on the podcast uh, please rate us on itunes and with that, um, hello, guest. Do you want to introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Uh, my name's Patrick Cavins. I'm a postdoc in the Department of Chemistry.
0: So you're Dr. Patrick Cavins.
1: I am Dr. <laughs> Cavins, master of none.
0: Have you, gotten, have you gotten used to hearing Dr. Cavins
2: yet?
1: Not really. Okay. <laughs> it still sort of catches me off guard a lot.
2: <laughs> who, who, who tells you, like, just random people, like, or when you introduce yourself as doctor or, like, generally, when would you say doctor?
1: Uh, I don't think I ever introduce myself as Dr. Kavins. Um, But, like, if I'm at a conference or something and I get introduced now, it usually takes a second to realize that, oh, they're talking to me. Like, oh, yeah, it's, I'm here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so.
2: Nice. Nice.
0: So I have one more question. Sorry about this, (laughs) about this train of thought. So do you ever look around the room and realize you're the most senior person and then
1: try to look for another adult to help you? (laughs) You mean like in the lab setting? Yes. Yes. (laughs) That happens a lot (laughs) where I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm, hmm." and I I quickly formulate a response like, okay, this. And they're like, yeah, that's right. And I'm like, yes. (laughs) I, I don't know if it's like
0: imposter syndrome or what is it, but I will never accept that I am like the senior member in my lab right now.
1: Oh, yeah. Or even just we are. in conversation with people. Like this week we we got a really good result where we did some test radiofluorination reactions. Mm-hmm. and Which we'll talk about in a minute. And my boss was like quizzing me on F-18 chemistry. And I was like, why is she asking me all these questions? And then she said, "She goes, I, I I've not really done F eighteen work at all before." And I was like, "Oh, she thinks that I'm like the magic the eight ball." <laughs> the magic eight ball. And I was like, "Oh, okay."
2: <laughs> so we'll be worried
0: when she
1: starts shaking you. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
2: Hopefully, she's not listening to the show.
1: No. 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 I think. I think she would. That's what basically what she said to me. She like. She's. She said Hopkins was a carbon eleven place. We didn't do much. Florian 18 work back in the day. And I was like, oh, okay. That's why she's asking me all of this. Like, I thought she was, like, quizzing me, like, (laughs) legit. And I was just like, well, I might do this or this or this. And then when she said that, I was like, oh, we're, like, talking like colleagues. Like, it clicked (laughs) into place. That's awesome. Well,
0: that's exciting. (laughs) So why don't you tell us, let's take a step back and talk about how did you get into science?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think... The entry point for me was definitely, like, middle school and grade school science fairs. I definitely remember doing Mm -hmm. those a lot, and I got really into them way more than most of my fellow, uh, you know, compatriots in grade school and middle school. Yeah. And I think that's how I sort of got started in science, was just science fair. Like, I did it, and I really liked it, and then I just every year tried to do something different or cool you know, I didn't just blow it off as like, oh, I have to do science fair again this year.
2: Well, what what was your favorite, or experiment that you as remember? Said, doing? Do
0: you remember any of your experiments?
1: Yeah, and actually, it's it's sort of funny. One experiment sort of lives in infamy. So <laughs> I love this. My my dad is sort of like an engineer, but like kind of a fake engineer. Um, <laughs> uh, like he he doesn't have a degree in engineering, but his work. Where he worked was basically as an engineer. Gotcha. And so one year I was like, I want to build bridges and, like, you know, break them and see their weights based on the different styles of bridges and whatever. And my dad, like, got really into this idea. And so we designed these, like, incredibly elaborate bridges with, like, fish string and all of these intricate parts. And... The weight to break them was like the dishwasher or no, the the washing machine. Like we we had to make a fulcrum and like put the weight of the washing machine on one of the bridges to get it to break. And I remember telling the judges in science fair this and they were like, you're lying. And I was like, I, I'm not like, and this was before, like, you know, like smartphone you take a photo Take a picture. Yeah. Right. So it was just like me making something up. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like we were in the basement. We had exhausted all the cement bricks my dad had brought from work home that night. And so he was like, well, I guess we'll get a, you know, two by six and we'll, uh, we'll put the washing machine on it and that'll do it. And sure enough, it snapped in a minute. So <laughs> it was just like, oh, wow.
0: That's awesome. <laughs> did you, did Jackie, did you have science fair projects?
2: Uh, I did, but I wasn't really like a science, like experiment stuff. Mm-hmm. It was just like, you know, your volcano thing. Gotcha. We would do like in middle school, I remember most of the experiments, Like we had chemistry classes, but we didn't have much labs. Mm. Um, So most of the labs were bio stuff. And Mm -hmm. so we had to deal with like squishy things and blood things. And I was just like, someone got like really into, we had to dissect uh, lungs of different animals. And my team was like a cow. (laughs) and so you can picture like this big thing just like sitting on the bench and it was just like I don't want to do this and and my my other colleagues who one of them is actually a doctor now she was really into it and I was just like I don't like this at all I'd rather have like explosive things or something not Mm. this squishy things but yeah we didn't have much of like science fairs gotcha what about you
0: yeah, we had a science fair and I remember my project was about the efficiency of the keyboard. And so I like took a keyboard and like popped the keys off of it and rearranged them. Um and so what I had is I had three levels of expertise with a keyboard and I was like the middle range even though I was like 10 and not experienced. <laughs> and my mom was like the high range. And now as an adult, my mom, like she's a peck typer. So just mm-hmm. one finger picking. It. <laughs> so it was skewed data. is what I like, uh, Our expert was not considered an expert by my current standards. <laughs> Sorry, mom, I know you're listening. <laughs> and, um, and then the beginner was like my friend who had like never had a computer. So we were pretty skewed data wise, but, I, like, rearranged the keys, and you had to type out a sentence, and, like, I found a more efficient keyboard. um, How? Just by identifying what the most frequently used letters were and putting those under your fingers instead of having you to, like, reach for the E or the R. And I actually got really, like, now as an adult, I'm impressed with my younger self because (laughs) I even... Um, weighted what was considered a frequently used letter. So if you take out like I and 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 or and all that, it it significantly changes what's most frequently used. So I had one keyboard that took that out of consideration and one keyboard that had that in consideration and I my mom texted me. She's listening. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I was impressed with myself back then, but.
2: Was this okay, was this like the, the computers that you had in school, or like your own personal one.
0: It was our computer at uh-huh. home. Okay, and cool. I remember that the keyboard never quite Windows worked right 96? after that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Definitely. <laughs> that was back in the day.
2: The good old days when we had computer classes.
0: Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, science fairs are a good way to get into science. So cool. how
2: did how did you end up being this kid with this quasi-engineered dad? You've seen a washing machine to break a bridge <laughs> to a radiochemist.
1: <laughs> uh, what happened afterwards? <laughs> what happened afterwards? Um, not much, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first, like, real science job I had was when I was a senior in high school. I was a crop physiology intern at Monsanto. And so that's really what got me, like...
0: So what did you do um, Exactly.
1: So crop physiology is sort of basically walking through fields, taking any number of different measurements, Mm -hmm. using all different types of agronomy-based tools and logging that data. And then all I did in high school was basically some very simple like... Like height, length
0: of branches.
1: (laughs) No, I mean the data was more... The data collected was more complex than that it was like we had a... It's called a Lycor. It's a portable photosynthesis module. And so you can attach it to a plant and measure all number of variables, like how much CO2 it's taking in, Mm. what, like, the average um, pressure of the leaf is. And these are all things that the agronomists, like, really care about when they're developing their strains. And so we would collect this data, but I didn't really do much with it. Like, Mm -hmm. I just sort of turned it over to the scientists and said, like, oh, yeah, these plants were, like, dead or missing. And that was basically the extent to which I handled the data. <laughs> That's
0: still a pretty cool job. Wait, did you have to go out there if it was raining or snowing?
1: Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. I
0: take back what I said.
1: Yeah, it was, it was like, <laughs> definitely, like, hmm, I really like science. But, you know, I'm a Midwesterner. And so it's, like... 115 degrees with 100% humidity walking through cornfields and <laughs> no. you just like have corn rash all over. It doesn't <laughs> matter how many like long sleeve shirts you wear. You're just like I don't see this as a long-term career path for me. <laughs> oh boy. So, I so, did that mm-hmm. and then uh I actually took part in the uh Stevens Summer Fellowship program. Here at MU, which is like a REU kind of thing for uh, people in college. Mm -hmm. And so I really enjoyed it. And then I sort of decided. Which is
2: like research. You come and do research here at the university. Exactly. exactly. And and at this point you were in college somewhere else, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I went
1: to Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois. And so that was sort of my first real taste of like actual research, you know, because I had like a project. Mm -hmm. And things I was supposed to do. And what was your project there? Uh, So I made a, at that time, Tim was developing sensors for DNA base pairs. So this is Dr. Tim
0: Glass in the Department of Chemistry. Yeah,
1: yeah. And um, he was making fluorescent sensors to detect free base pairs in solutions. So I made an organic scaffold to detect these, these sensors or these DNA base pairs. So that was my first project. And Mm -hmm. so my part was basically um, another grad student had made this sensor already and it hadn't worked very well. And so I made the same sensor, but with some minor structural modifications. And lo and behold, it didn't work very well either. (laughs) (laughs) So it was just sort of, you know, but that's a lot of science. So, you know, trial and error.
0: So what do you say? Can you break down how these sensors work a little bit.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um it's been a long time ago, but I'm sure the resident biology people here can say more. There's a certain percentage of DNA base pairs that are free inside the cell, like just floating just, around. Right. And um these sensors basically bind those free DNA base pairs selectively, mm-hmm. and the output is that you get uh, a fluorescence change, okay. or that there's some sort of light emitted by the molecule. I was gonna say, so it lights up. It lights up, right? So that you can detect that DNA base pair. Okay. And um, my memory is a little fuzzy, but I think that there's some relationship to the health of a cell and to the overall concentration of DNA base pairs that are free gotcha. in the cell. That I'm pretty sure that it's Lice. the thicker the cell, the <laughs> The more free DNA base <laughs> pairs there are, I don't know. Yes. I, I don't quite remember that part, but
0: but there was some relationship there. So having a sensor that could tell you how many there were mm-hmm. would give you some information about the cell
1: health. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah, and so it was it was a really fun project, and you know I I learned a lot, and it was sort of kind of like okay I, I really like this, you know, and that's kind of what got me onto the grad school track, you know,
0: because
1: mm. I think. I think before that, I was like, I knew I wanted to do something after undergrad, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't exactly sure what that something was, you know? It was kind of, you know, I'm sure like a lot of undergrads, they feel like a little overwhelmed by all the choices.
0: Absolutely. And you're told that you can do anything. Yeah. But when you have infinite choices, how do you pick which one's the right one for you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, like, um... Depending on, you know, where you grew up and stuff like that, your perception of infinity can be very different, too. You know, sure. I think a lot of kids who come to undergrad and say, oh, I want to go to med school. They probably say that because that's the only opportunity they really, like, know of. Right. right? You know, and so once they learn of, oh, well, maybe actually this is more like what I want to do,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and that's what they go off and do, you know. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, and that
2: changes in grad school,
1: too. Oh, yeah. Definitely changes <laughs> in grad school.
0: So
2: I'm not really familiar with the
0: REU process. Did you know what project you would be on before you, like, applied to be a part of it?
1: No, no, okay. no, not at all. Um, so you
0: were just thrown into chemistry, really?
1: Well, I had I had selected, like, you had to list, the it like, I think it was the top two or three advisors okay. that you... um wanted to potentially work with. Mm-hmm. And I think that you were asking your cover letter to maybe like address why you were interested sure. in those guys. And so I think it was a little bit interest driven as opposed to like this PI saying, I have space in my lab. Gotcha. They can come work for me.
2: Okay. So, yeah. You of you're going to pick the ones that you want to work with. And then if the professor has space, space or a project, then, then they'll let you in. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, And then you have a grad student that looks over you and that's it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Fun. Yeah, it was fun.
2: So after you did that, um, then you started grad school, like when, after you graduated from undergrad?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I went straight into grad school Mm -hmm. after um, undergrad.
2: And you got your PhD with uh, Professor Glass, right?
1: Yeah. Yes. Yes, I did.
2: Awesome. And what were you doing? What was your project in as a Uh, grad student?
1: So the main project I was involved in was um, when I started grad school, the university had just gotten a large DOE plant imaging grant, and there was... um,
2: Department of Energy, you mean?
1: Yeah, Department of Energy plant imaging grant, and the sort of thrust of that grant was to develop new ways to image plant processes, whether that's uptake of metals from the soil or anything like that. And so the project that I was working on was to develop a molecule that could be used to tag peptides and uh, study them.
0: Oh, cool. So hold on. Okay. This is a question that I should know the answer to. Okay. But I keep getting conflicting reports. What is the difference between a peptide and a protein to you? Uh,
1: I don't know about the definition difference, mm-hmm. but for me, a protein is something that has uh, defined like secondary or tertiary structure, you okay. know, where the amino acids are interacting with each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that for peptides, most of the time, they don't have that or it's minimized. Like it's not locked in that position like it is with a protein. But, you know, I don't I don't have a great working definition of that either.
0: <laughs> so I've heard that definition. I've also heard that it's based solely on the number of residues, that if you're at 50 or less, you're at a peptide. And if you're at 51 to a million, then you're at a protein. Oh, wow. And then I've also heard that a peptide is... Um, but what are what are pe- what are we talking about? Proteins versus peptides. I
2: know, but like, what is like? What's even? the defining feature? <laughs> oh, yeah. uh,
0: well, so a protein <laughs> is a molecule in our body that performs a lot of functions. That's my and they definition. are built
2: of amino acids. Of amino, amino acids, acids, yes. Yep. So, so the, the building blocks is what you're saying. Like, if it has less than fifty, then it's, it's, considered it's called a peptide. peptide.
0: Mm-hmm. And if it's more than fifty, it's considered a protein. But I've also heard that the method in which we get that molecule defines if it's a peptide or not so if it's synthetic or if we made it in a lab by piecing those amino acids together it's a peptide but if it's naturally occurring or if we can grow it in e coli it's a protein so i stick to what what you said or a combination of the first two because if you have a small chain, it's not going to have this ter- this larger structure.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, or, or, or that the larger structure isn't locked like it is with right. a protein. Yeah. I mean, there will obviously be components of the building blocks that interact with each other, mm-hmm. but not in a fixed way that they do in proteins.
0: Yeah. We're going off on a very weird tangent. This spot. is what
2: <laughs> happens when you have chemists... Talking to each <laughs> other very scientifically. Yeah. So we're trying our best. Yeah. So okay, Patrick. So so you worked on that and then now you are a postdoc.
1: I am a postdoc now.
2: And and you were saying some random words. F eighteen C fourteen what? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. you're saying some crazy stuff <laughs> oh, really. I'm,
1: I'm sorry. I sorry. <laughs> yeah.
2: So so what is your project? What is it that you do?
1: So uh, the crux of my work with Dr. Lever is to develop molecules that we can radio label with fluorine eighteen. Um fluorine eighteen is a isotope of naturally occurring fluorine that has special properties that allow it to be imaged by certain types of devices. Um
0: so real quick, an isotope is you have a different number of neutrons. Yeah?
1: Well it depends. <laughs> yeah uh, I think an isotope is anything that is cuz you can have well no yeah it's just neutrons you're right yeah.
0: okay so uh fluorine is defined by how many protons it has correct correct so uh if you change and usually we have the same number of protons as neutrons
1: No, that's Mm -hmm. not necessarily the case. Uh, Early on in the periodic table, that is the case. But as you go deeper and deeper into it, as the positive charge gets larger, because of the number of protons, I think you have to have ever-increasing numbers of neutrons to separate out that positive charge. So at
0: some point, it kind of starts being almost exponential.
1: Yeah, I think so. I, I, you know, talking to... uh, you know, I don't know, an inorganic person would probably have that number better, but yeah, that's so the relationship.
0: When you identify an element like C13, mm-hmm. you're identifying that it has a different number of neutrons yeah, or correct. you're being specific.
1: Yeah. You're being specific about than the normal ones that we would generally. Right.
0: Have. So right. carbon is carbon 12. Mm-hmm. Well, right. usually you're saying carbon. Yeah. But, and that but is that's shorting. a mixed, right. right?
1: Like that's the key is so there's carbon 12 and there's carbon 13 carbon 14 and those all make up the naturally occurring carbon in mm-hmm. the universe. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, that's sort of what isotopes are. But cool.
2: but thanks to the advan- advancements in technology and science, now we can specifically get the one thing that we want, right? Or like most of it, the majority of it. So true, it, true. in which case, if you order fluorine 18, or if in my case I work with uh, phosphorus 32 for imaging purposes mm-hmm. too, I can
0: say. I use deuterium, so I use stuff too.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the term for that I think is called high specific activity okay so the the ability to make something very, very pure in a radiochemical process is referred to as specific activity, so the higher specific activity is the better the radiochemical mm. process is
0: mm. okay so every time you have an isotope is it radioactive
1: no okay no so like c13 is not radioactive deuterium mm. which is a hydrogen with an extra neutron or a proton is not uh neutron or a neutron thank you sorry it's <laughs> not radioactive
2: Okay. But hydrogen with three neutrons is Tridium. radioactive, which yes. is called tritium.
1: Tritium.
0: So you work with radioactive isotopes.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's what I do. But I I I do it pretty infrequently. There's a lot of... The radiochemistry is the splashy part, but getting there mm. is the really hard, tedious stuff.
2: So, so. you said you're, you're using fluorine-18 to detect what? I don't know. Or... Did you say it?
1: No, I hadn't said. (laughs) We hadn't gotten there yet. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no. Um, So there are a class of receptors in the brain that are called sigma receptors. And there's two subtypes, sigma one and sigma two.
0: Okay.
1: And there is a lot of evidence in the biology sector, biology world, that says depending on the levels of expression... Of these two, you may or may not be susceptible to certain kinds of things, right? Okay, like disease? Disease or cancer or even, you know, psychiatric type disorders. Okay. And things like that. And so. So
2: it depends on the ratio of how much you have of the one or two that it may lead to. Like if you have 60 40, it may lead to disease X. If exactly. you have 50 50, then it's you're fine or normal or whatever.
1: Exactly, exactly. And so the biologists sort of understand this peripherally, but they 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 struggle to have the tools I think to understand it on a really small cellular level, mm-hmm. to understand how the expression of sigma 1 versus sigma 2 changes in the brain over over a population, right? And that's
0: really the first step to understanding these
1: macroorganisms
0: like a human body.
1: Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. When you
2: when you say expression, what
1: do you mean? I mean how many of those receptors are present, like the physical number of them, are present in the in the in the brain.
2: So, so the biologists know that a certain ratio or certain ratios can cause something, or can make you more prone to it, but they don't know how to control that express or that ratio.
1: The biologists don't know how Mm -hmm. to control it. I think. It's more... Um, or don't know even how it's controlled? I think it's 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 that. They like know that the genes that control the expression of those receptors are present. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's very well understood at what levels those genes are expressed. And they know, or they think from their preliminary work, that they think that there's some connection between the expression and these kinds of traits. But I mm-hmm. think... They really need to know because they need to better understand that process. Mm It's really where mm it boils down. How
2: much of it is produced or is actually being produced.
1: Exactly. exactly. Well,
2: you see the thing, you see the machine, but you don't know how much of it is pumping out.
1: Exactly. Exactly. That's a great analogy.
2: Cool. So what does this have to do with you?
1: So (laughs) the, the lever group for many years now has been involved in making new compounds to select for the Sigma two subtype Mm
2: -hmm. compared
1: to the Sigma one subtype. And so there are, and the the reason for that is because there are numerous commercially available compounds that bind Sigma one very, very, very well, but don't bind Sigma two Mm -hmm. or bind them in a mixture, right? And so we want to make compounds that bind the Sigma two receptor subtype Specifically mm-hmm. and solely that subtype. Gotcha.
0: Mm.
1: So that's what you know people have been working on in her lab for probably I don't maybe ten years at this point. I know it's been the focus of many a graduate student and postdoc in their <laughs> group. So
2: So a long line.
1: Yeah, a very, very long line.
2: So, so you're so. you're making molecules mm-hmm. that would detect the sigma two type.
1: hmm Yes.
2: Receptors. You got it. That's pretty cool. So where does the fluorine-18 have to do with this?
1: So the fluorine-18 is sort of like the final byproduct because not only do we want to study the receptors, we want to image them, just physically see their locations mm-hmm. in the brain. Gotcha. So the normal drug compound, which I'll say, has a fluorine-19 molecule on it. Okay. And so what we do is we develop a compound that we can exchange the fluorine-19...
2: Which is a normal one, which non-radioactive. Is
1: non-radioactive for a fluorine-18. And that gives us a radioactive tracer that we can inject into mouse models or you know whatever, mm-hmm. and then put that mouse into a PET imager, and we can look at its brain, and we can say, okay, this, this part of the brain is more selectively lit up compared to this part... Maybe the expression of sigma-2 subtype receptors is focused in yes. this region of the brain.
0: And then we can focus in on that region Exactly, kind of zoom in from there.
1: Exactly, exactly. So It's sort of like a mapping tool.
0: Mm-hmm. So my general understanding of radioactive compounds are that they are primarily used for imaging or for diagnostics.
1: Uh, by diagnostics, you mean therapy? Yes. Yeah, therapy. Yep. Those are the two main uses. So
0: fluorine eighteen is, It is
1: a imaging only, only. isotope. Okay. Yeah. Um, there are some isotopes, like copper sixty four, that do both. Mm-hmm. That have therapeutic and imaging <coughs> components. Okay. So.
2: Cool. So how long how long does the fluorine eighteen live?
1: The fluorine eighteen has uh, just under two hour half life
2: two-hour half-life. Can you explain a little bit more about
1: half-lives? Sure. Uh, a half-life is the, the time by which the initial activity has decayed by one half. So, and that can be measured in many different sorts of units mm-hmm. or uh, ways.
2: And so, it depending on so, fluorine 18 has a half life of two hours, which means your stuff will be active for two hours, maybe four. But then after that, you will not be able to see anything.
1: Exactly. Exactly. That it, it disappears over the course of time.
2: It disappears into what?
1: So, um, 18 is a positron emitter. Okay. Which means it takes a proton... That has a charge associated with it. A positive can, charge. A positive charge associated with it. And converts that into a neutron. And that positive charge is shot out of the atom as a positron. And it finds an electron and goes through an annihilation process. And that's how we do the imaging. <laughs> that sounds awesome. <laughs> it is pretty cool. But can be a challenge too. So.
2: Sure. So then, uh, uh, fluorine 18... Then, once it's done through that process, then it turns into something that is not
1: radioactive, correct? Correct, yeah. So, let's see, fluorine 18 if it loses a proton, it
2: becomes
0: fluorine 17,
1: but it's no. a proton, so it's no longer called fluorine, it's oh, oxygen 17. Oxygen. So it's you're right, you're right. Yeah, yeah, sorry,
2: so it turns into an oxygen,
0: but Ooh. O17 <laughs> is an isotope of oxygen, so would that keep? Going or does it stop at oxygen? It
1: depends. So there's like a whole series of um, decays. Decays that occurs. They're called branching decays, I think. Okay. And so some elements like uranium has tons of decay products. They're called daughters mm-hmm. in radiochemistry. So the parent isotope uranium decays into many, many, many daughters during the course of its lifetime. Mm-hmm. And some of those daughters are stable, and some of those daughters are also oh, radioactive.
0: Interesting. So it's like a family tree of uranium. It is, it is. But each, um, you know, atom goes through. Exactly, <laughs> Interesting.
2: Exactly. Yeah, and so in this case, fluorine 18 or some other imaging tools that we use they don't decay into more radioactive things, they decay into something stable, non radioactive that yeah. then can be just disposed of. If it's being utilized in the body or if it's in the, lab, in the lab, yeah. Then yeah. we just save the vials and wait until it's all gone. All gone. Right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Swipes are the key to life. <laughs> yep. <laughs> So yeah, it's
2: not that fancy.
1: <laughs> it's really not. I mean, I think the the technical skill is that um, with radioactivity, you're working with incredibly, incredibly small amounts of compound. And so, you know, the things that you use with the radioactivity have to be incredibly pure. And there's a very mm-hmm. high standard that has to be met with that or the reactions that you're trying to do just aren't going to work because you're already working with something that's disappearing oh and already yeah. vanishing small. So you have to have things very highly optimized mm-hmm. for them to work well or you're just going to get out crap.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, we're, we're having a really interesting conversation with Patrick, and we'll be right back. Uh, we're going to go on a short musical break. Uh, you're listening to The Big Electron on KCOU 88.1 FM. Welcome back to The Big Electron here on KCOU 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening. Uh, We're talking to Patrick uh, about the cool work that he's doing and talking about radioactivity stuff. And Anahita, you had some questions. Yes. So you mentioned
0: that you're working with really small quantities. Mm -hmm. So um, that sounds great because it's radioactive material. Could you tell us a little bit about like the safety of that? Is it the small quantities is keeping you safe while you work with this material? Do you have any concerns about safety?
1: Um, so it's a um, it's a component of that. Mm-hmm. So there's a really wonky acronym that people use that's called alara and it's uh, <laughs> as low as reasonably achievable. okay. And what that basically means is you should work, as diligently as possible to minimize the dose of activity that you would potentially receive by working with these isotopes. And we have, you know, any number of different ways that that is, you know, handled. Um, When I was down or when I was at Brookhaven, Mm -hmm. we actually had to wear like scrubs and plastic booties and gauntlets and like full lab jackets And that kind of stuff. Um, At MU, the requirements are slightly less. Uh, Basically, it's a conversation that you have with your assigned radiation safety officer and talk about, okay, this is what we're planning to do. This is the setup that we're going to use. What do you think? And then they'll say, oh, well, maybe you should try it this way Mm -hmm. because if the shielding, sorry, the other component is shielding which is basically lead or plastic that basically absorbs the radioactivity coming out of the compounds and protects you.
0: So you're just never in direct contact with it.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And so, um, you know, you'll have a conversation with your, your radiation safety officer and says, okay, okay, this is the experiment yeah. we're going to do. This is sort of the plan, and they may say, "Well, I think you probably need another row of lead bricks," or "I think what you have is fine." Mm-hmm. And that's just really—it's a—it's a conversation, you know. It's the biggest part of working with activity that you have to be careful.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and I'm guessing when you were in the uh, Brookhaven National Lab, it was like different activity or a different isotope that requires some other higher. Activity measure, not activity, higher uh, security measures that yeah. you have to follow. Whereas here at NMI, we work with very small quantities.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Especially in our labs, that.
1: Yeah, it's definitely based on the, you know, the level of isotope that's being produced in the lab throughout the day, and at BNL, they were doing lots and lots and lots of work every day. So there's lots of like potential for contamination to just get spread about the lab very easily because mm-hmm. there was six or eight people working in that lab at a time. And so if like one thing happens that just gets multiplied by six people very, very quickly, you know, right. before it could mm-hmm. be detected. So they had much more stringent, you know, safety requirements.
2: Yeah. And here, and it also depends, I believe in the isotope, with the isotope that you're working. Cause I know in my lab, um, we work very small quantities, but at the same time, uh, the the isotope and whatever it emits, it's, it, it can be absorbed by plastic. Right. And so we have these like plastic shields that basically protect us from it. And which is where our our safety glasses and, um, and we have the shields that we work behind to protect us from, from that radiation.
1: Yeah. That makes sense. And depending to your, um, You also have to wear dosimetry, which is basically a device that tracks the amount of activity you've been exposed to. And that's a quarterly uh, device, and it gets sent in, and they read it and say, okay, you're, you know, I mean, if you were. I mean, I've never had this happen. You know, your hands are, you got kind of a large dose on your hands this month. You need to work, you know, more closely or safely, you know, with the activity. So
0: this dosimeter, Mm -hmm. is it like a little electronic, what does it look like? What is, it looks Uh, like a ring. It's,
1: there's, there's two types. There's rings and badges. Okay. And there's also alarming dosimeters for when you work with really high doses. Mm -hmm. And so, um, the badge is basically about the size of a business card folded in half. Okay. And it has a little, um, I think it's a crystal of some kind Mm -hmm. on the inside and it has a color response to the activity. So as it Absorbs more activity; it changes colors, mm-hmm. and they read that. I think, and that's what they get a count of.
2: I see. And you, you wear it kind of like a pin, right? Yeah, you wear it yeah. around your your chest area or whatever you're mm-hmm. working with. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: And
1: then, like, or you
0: have a ring <coughs> and it's on your finger on because your, your hands are what you're working. Yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah,
1: yeah. So.
0: Very cool. So, mm-hmm. which one you use? It depends on what kind of work you're doing, or is it just equally? You know, is it just a preference? Like.
1: Uh, I think at MU you don't have a preference. You, If you are working with isotopes, you have to, I think you're required to wear at least one finger, okay. one ring badge on your dominant hand, and a dosimeter at all times. Oh, I see. Um, I think when I was at Brookhaven. But,
2: but it does depend on what isotope and how much activity you are working with. I okay. Because in my case, even though I work with radioactivity stuff, I don't have to wear it because of the small quantities and the small amount of time that I get exposed to it gotcha. that it's not whereas if I was working at, at the reactor or mm-hmm. that was like my daily thing that I would work the eight hours a week then um, eight hours a day that would be something that you have to wear every single time
1: yeah gotcha. yeah so but that's the way it's it's structured hmm.
2: so do you feel safe in your lab
1: oh yeah I don't ever feel not <laughs> <Good. safe. laughs> Good.
2: do you feel safe in your lab I mean. <laughs> I mean, you work with lasers. You're the dangerous one. Yeah, right? We can't just wait for this thing to die. And, you know, Patrick, it's only two hours. Me, it's only 14 days. I feel safe with
0: my laser.
2: <laughs>
0: well, I feel safe with my laser.
1: <laughs> I think, I don't know, I... I've never... I've knocked Where's some wood? Not this plastic table, but <laughs> knock on wood. Of all my organic work, I've not had any anything bad happen yet. So. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I've caught myself on the beam <laughs> a couple times. Ooh. But it... Does just, it hurt or no? It feels like a little sting. Mm-hmm. So... But you have to be at a high enough energy. So it, it's like a very specific circumstance that I wouldn't regularly find myself in.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, I think that's the same thing with activity. Yeah. You know, as long as you know the rules and follow them, you're going to be in the clear. You know, it's just like the the one-off things when something bad happens that you're kind of like, okay, we got to think very carefully about what we do next.
0: Well, that's what I was going to say. It's all about understanding. Right. And knowing and being responsible. Yeah. With that understanding.
1: The and last day of Alara.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Achievable. <laughs> and, the, and, and also, I think one of the one of the main things, one of the main advantages of working with radioactive materials is that you have to take into account the half life of things. So, like for you, Patrick, it's only two hours. For me, I have a little bit of an advantage because I take mine takes fourteen days, so two weeks, and in that period of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, these things are not cheap, and so no. you really have to plan ahead and know exactly what you're going to do at exactly what time mm-hmm. so you can get all that. And with the planning includes um, the safety, the mm-hmm. safety measures, because um, you're planning ahead, and I think that's that's generally a, a good thing oh, when, totally. when it comes totally. to safety. Absolutely. Yeah. So
0: It's just interesting to think about how many things go into research that aren't the most obvious such as like time planning and safety planning it's not just is this experiment gonna work
1: oh yeah oh yeah I think that's something at least the time management you get better with as you as you go through
0: definitely <laughs> whenever I train new people I'm like why is this taking four times as long as when I do it oh they're just not experienced yeah yeah
1: yeah, yeah. It's, or and it's it's just like the knowing when you actually have to be really precise right. and when you don't, it's just kind of crazy. Cause it's like, I'm going to make this 50 50 solution of something. And for me, it doesn't actually matter. And I remember an undergrad was once like very astutely, <laughs> like looking at the meniscus yeah. and I was just like dumping and dumping. And she's like, well, what about 50 50? I was like, uh, it's close <laughs> enough.
2: <laughs> yeah. But I bet for you on a Nahita- you do have to be very, very specific.
0: Yes, we are very precise mm-hmm. and accurate with everything that we do.
2: <laughs> also on the third floor? Not so much. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, so for for me,
0: well sure. as an analytical cat, uh-huh. analytical lab, um, concentrations and things like that, you need to control for them mm-hmm. to be able to, you know, compare to other mm-hmm. exa- um, experiments or s- samples that we're looking at. So, yeah.
1: And that's what makes, for me, radiochemistry so different than my organic work mm-hmm. is it is so very, very highly analytical Yeah. Mm-hmm. and it's not a hat that I wear on a day to day basis. So I have to sort of reorient myself before I do it to say, okay, we have to be very, very accurate and precise with everything we're about to do because it's very small amounts yeah. and all that kind of stuff.
0: It's interesting because like the things that are of concern are so radically different. So I, would be worried about, you know, the chemicals and like, are these chemicals safe? I don't know. Am I should I be breathing this in? Like, yeah. <laughs> should I be wearing a mask and stuff like that? And you would, you have a more intimate understanding of that. Whereas the things I'm concerned on are like, are like, is there bacteria in this water? I need to make sure it's ultra pure. Right? Is this? Oh, this has been sitting out for a couple of days. It has the possibility of having, you know, contaminated air in the capsule. We need to get a new one. Like, mm-hmm. it's just interesting how in the same building, we have such radically different concerns while still having the same concerns, safety, Mm -hmm. good science.
1: Good science. That's always key.
0: Yeah. That's what it all comes back to. All your life, Charlie Brown. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, um, I have one more question, I guess. And this is a question we'd like to ask everybody, which is if, um, for a young scientist or a fellow scientist that's interested in following your steps, oh what advice do you have?
2: Or just science in general. Yeah, it doesn't not, have to not be your necessarily steps. yours.
1: <laughs> I think, you know, um, especially if you live in Columbia, Missouri, you have any number of different opportunities at the university at which you can get involved in science. You know, the university has a lot of different outreach programs. mm mm-hmm that you could try to become a part of and learn from. Um, But I think also the other thing is to just, to just do it. You know, it sounds so trite as I, the words come out of my mouth, but (laughs) it's just to, 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 to realize like, okay, this is what I want to do. And to, and, and to be cognizant of that and ask the right questions and follow the lead and just, you know, do that. I mean, that's, that's the way I ended up here. It's, you know, kind of just by being at the right place at the right time, but also putting myself in that place. You know what I mean?
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. And then I have one more weird question. (laughs) So um, if everything, if all of science knowledge disappeared, what would be the one thing you would want people to know to keep doing your research? What would be like that fundamental, you need to know this? And that's kind of a tough question. So I don't mean to put you on the spot. Yeah, that is really tough.
1: I think the fundamental outcome of my work is that we can change human lives for the better.
0: Oh, that's such a hopeful message.
1: <laughs> and I, it's like so cheesy to say, because, you know, like as scientists, you all probably do this too, is we live in the minutia. We live in the, is this water have bacteria in it? Yeah. Is my glassware been flame dried at the approximate temperature, right? right. But it's like the big picture of like this stuff has the potential probably maybe not in my lifetime or during my time in the group to really maybe do something good or unique. And that's, that's what you don't want to lose. Yeah,
2: <laughs> That's very nice. <laughs> well, thank you, Patrick, for being on the show. It was uh, good having you here. Thank you, thank um, you for asking me. Yeah, for sure. And uh, we'll be back next weekend with uh, some more science stuff.
1: Oh, wait, can I give a quick shout-out? Sure. Sure. The MU Postdoctoral Association is Mm -hmm. hosting Sarah Spritzer on April the 20th. She is the university's uh, lobbyist to the federal government. Mm -hmm. She's going to give a talk about the status of federal funding and sort of how to be your best advocate for federal funds. It'll be in the... Bond Life Science Center from 4 to 5 p.m. We'll have snacks and pizza and a reception afterwards. What day? April the 20th.
2: Awesome. And there's awesome. a Facebook
1: page that you could look up if
2: you're interested. If you're yeah. interested.
1: Mm-hmm. But yeah, please come. I think it'll be a really good talk.
0: We'll share that Facebook page on our Facebook. Mm-hmm. So okay, cool. if you're following The Big Electron, you can see it there.
1: Exciting.
2: Awesome. Alright, well, thanks again, Patrick, for being here. Uh, again, you were listening to The Big Electron on KCOU Columbia 88.1 FM.